Word. Good morning, Salt Church. Today's scripture comes from Romans 1, 24 through 32. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. This is not my first time preaching. You would think I would know not to talk in a microphone when they are doing the scripture reading. Well, good morning, Salt Church. How are we? Well, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors on staff. So glad that you guys are here with us this morning. If you have a Bible or or a phone, you can uh, open that up, swipe that up, whatever you need to do, power it up uh, to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, we're gonna be in the text that you just heard and we're gonna continue our preaching series in the book of Romans. Well, as a parent, I have found myself saying many things that I thought I would never say. Uh, For example, I never thought I'd have to convince another human being that drawing family portraits on the wall with a Sharpie is just not a good idea. Uh, I never thought I'd have to explain to a four-year-old that they are not, in fact, a beautician and should not cut their sister's hair, no matter how good they think they are at it. That's just not a good idea. As a parent, I have found myself saying things, many things that I thought I would never say, sometimes in the same week. And if you've been parenting for longer than five minutes, you know there comes a point uh, where maybe you've told your kid to do something or not to do something a thousand times, and yet they still disobey you over and over and over again. And so you do what any sane, rational parent would do. You throw your hands up and you say, okay, kid, you want to do it your way? Go ahead. Let's see how this works out for you. Right? Like you want to continue to eat 900 pieces of leftover Halloween candy? Go ahead. That is going to end in a stomachache. You want to continue to not clean your room after I've asked you a hundred times to clean it? Go ahead. When the creepy crawly things come into your room, you're not going to want to sleep in there. Uh, If you want to continue to try and drink leftover communion wine, even though we told you not to, uh, go ahead. You are not going to like the taste of that. Not that my kids would know anything about that. Uh, At some point in parenting, you have to let your kids learn on their own that the choices that they want to make are not always the right choices, that the choices that they want to make are not always the best thing 
for them. Now, I bring this up because in today's text, we're going to see God do the same thing with us. God is a good father, and he's told us how this world works. He's designed it for a purpose, and he showed us what is good and what is right and what is bad and what is wrong. But if we continue to not listen to him, if we continue to ignore him, if we continue to disobey him over and over and over again, God will do what any sane, rational parent will do. If you notice in our text, it's going to say three times, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. That's the biblical way of saying, okay, kid, you want to do it your way? Go ahead. Let's see how this works out for you. And the reason God does this is not to be cruel. God wants to show us that the sin that we think is going to lead to our flourishing actually leads to our destruction. See, the truth is, as we, if we continue to not listen to God what, and what he says about sin, he will let us experience the effects of our sin in hopes that we will turn from it and believe him and take him at his word. So with that said, let me catch us up to where we've been in the book of Romans. Romans chapter one, uh, verses 16 and 17, Paul spells out essentially the thesis statement of Romans. He says, hey, the Christian life is all about the gospel. And then in typical Paul fashion, he's gonna use a lot of words to explain what the gospel is. He's gonna spend 11 chapters in Romans explaining what the gospel is. But before he gets to that, in chapters one, uh, going into, starting in verse 18, going into the middle of chapter three, Paul's going to set up why we need the gospel. He's going to show the problem that the gospel answers. Or as Drake put it last week, he's showing the bad news before he gets to the good news. And he kicks this all off in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what's our problem? What's the bad news? What does the gospel answer? It's the wrath of God. The wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Last week, we saw why there is the wrath of God, why the wrath of God is revealed. And namely, it's because we've suppressed the truth about God and we've turned to idolatry. This week, we're gonna uh, take a look at how the wrath of God is revealed. Or in other words, what does the wrath of God look like? Uh, to do that, let me give you a little theology 101 on the wrath of God. Think of this like painting. Before you put a coat of paint on the wall, you want to put what's called a primer in order for that paint to better stick and shine on the wall. Well, likewise, in order for these verses to stick in our brains and shine in our hearts, we want to lay down a primer of the wrath of God in order to understand it. So let's talk about the wrath of God. Sound fun, right? Like I learned this in school. If you want to grow a church, talk about the wrath of God and money. And that's your way to grow. No, that's not how that works. Uh, you might want to eat some comfort food after this message. Just forewarned. Your pastor said it's okay though. All right, so here's my theology 101 on the wrath of God. Oftentimes when we think about the wrath of God, we think of God's like unrestrained anger, right? That, that he's got this hot temper and he's about ready to fly off the handle and smite sinners with the fury and rage of a thousand burning suns, right? But that's not really the wrath of God. Uh, the wrath of God is not God being in a grumpy mood because he's having a bad day. The wrath of God is God's righteous response to a world gone mad with sin. God's wrath is not an attribute. It's actually an action. See, God's not so full of hate that he's wrathful. 
It's because God's so full of righteousness that he has wrath towards sin. And in fact, I'd argue you want a God who has wrath. You need a God who has wrath. Because what God's wrath means is that when God looks out on our world and he sees the injustice of it and he sees the cruelty of it and he sees the inhumaneness of it and he sees evil, God's wrath means that God's gonna do something about those things. So when we talk about God's wrath, we're not talking about feelings. We're talking about fairness. Think of it this way. If a judge in a courtroom just decided to start letting criminals go free, like, hey, I know you've been convicted of murder, but you're now innocent. Hey, I I know you've abused children, but you can now go free. Like, we wouldn't sit there and call that judge good. We'd be calling for his job. Why? Because what he's doing is not fair. It's not right. Similarly, it's not right or fair that God just simply lets sin go unpunished. It's the right and just and good thing to do because God is righteous. He has wrath towards sin. Now, our Western mindset uh, tends to bristle at this and not like it because oftentimes what we do is we've taken God's wrath and his love and we've made them opposites. Like we, do, we don't put God's wrath and love together. But guys, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. If I love my kids, that means I will hate anything that would harm them. To, to, to not hate anything that would harm them would be indifferent towards my kids. Do you guys see how, how love and wrath go together like that? If I were to walk into the Uvalde, Texas, where 19 kids were killed and slaughtered at Robb Elementary School, and I were to go up and start talking to parents who had to bury their, their kids, their sons and daughters, what would be a more hopeful message? There's a God who loves everyone and will accept whatever you do. Or there's a God who loves you so much that he hates the evil done to your kids and he's gonna do something about it. Because God doesn't have wrath in spite of his love. He has wrath because he is loving. See, deep down, we want a God of wrath. The problem is we don't want a God who has wrath towards us. But according to Romans 1, our issue is that we are all under the wrath of God. Every single one of us is under the wrath of God because every single one of us is unrighteous and ungodly. But here's the thing. Here's the ironic thing. The greatest expression of God's wrath in the scriptures is not some bolt of lightning to take you out. The greatest expression of God's wrath in the scriptures is to let you do what you want. See, we are all sinners and what we want to do is sin. And by definition, sin is saying, God, I don't want you. I want to live apart from you. And so God in his wrath, because he is righteous, will give us what our sin says that we want, a life apart from him. The great tragedy of the human race is that when we sin, God in his wrath, with tears in his eyes and grief in his heart, will let us have what we want a life apart from him. And he'll look at us and say, okay, kid, you want to do it your way? Go ahead. Let's see how this works out for you. You guys comfortable yet? (laughs) Somebody suggested earlier this week that we should have provided pillows and Snuggies uh, for this message because it is a lot. Um, And I realize that. Uh, But uh, I shouldn't have to explain why this text matters for us this morning, uh, but uh, before we move on, let me make one more pitch before we go any further. The gravity of this, I think, just matters too much because most of us are distracted in life. Most of us have 
concerns, whether it's our, our kids' sports teams or whether it's life after college or what we're majoring in or our dating life or a marriage life or what's in our retirement account or our buying a house, you fill in the blank. We are distracted with a thousand different things that most of us don't give the proper attention to what it means that God has wrath towards sin. But this morning, let me offer us a choice. We can either acknowledge that God is a good father and turn from our sin Or we can run away from home thinking we know what's best for our lives. But hear me on that. If we do that, the greatest tragedy of your life will be that God will let you. The question is, what will we choose? It's with this choice in mind that I want to turn our attention to three different categories or progressions of sin that God gives us over to in hopes that we will turn from them. The first category of progression is this. God gives us up to the sinful desires of our hearts. God gives us up to the sinful desires of our hearts. So if we flip over to Romans chapter one, I'm gonna read verses 24 and 25. It says this, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God gives us up to the sinful desires of our hearts. If you notice in verse 24, the first category of sin that Paul mentions here is the lust of their hearts. Now, typically when we think of the word lust, we think of sexual desire, but the word here in Greek is the word epithemia. And it just simply means excessive desires or extreme desires. It's the kind of desires that say, I can't live without that thing and I will do whatever it takes to get that thing. And of course, you can have that kind of desire about many things, not just sex. And so I would argue lust isn't probably the best uh, interpretation of that word. You can have excessive and extreme desires about anything. Success, power, money, relationships, reputation, career, grades, sports. There's many things you can look at and deep down believe, I need that to have a completely content and fulfilled life. I will do whatever it takes to get that thing. I cannot live without it. And you might be tempted to think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the, the problem isn't necessarily desiring things per se. The problem is when we desire things at such a level that we're expecting them to fulfill us in ways that only God can. See, within each of us, there is a God-sized hole that only God can fill. And when we turn to other things, expecting them to fulfill us and bring us contentment and satisfaction in life, expecting them to, to do that at a God-like level, we will be miserable. And it just so happens that in our sexually charged culture, sex is an obvious thing that we desire at a God-like level. We put God-like demands on it, expecting it to fulfill us in ways that only God can. And, and we think we can't live without it. I'll never forget several years ago, uh, a pastor appeared on the television show, The View, and Whoopi Goldberg asked a question along the lines of, uh, what happens if you want to have sex, but you don't want to get married? And the pastor's response was, well, Jesus lived, he's the son of God, right? He lived the most content, purpose-filled life that any human has ever lived on the planet, and yet he was a virgin. 
If he can do that, that, then that means you can live a life as a virgin without sex. You can have a completely true human experience, fulfilled and content without sex. And the scoff that this got, this response got on this show was incredible. Like the, the audience and, and Whoopi Goldberg and the, and the rest of the panel, th- this idea that you could live a completely fulfilled life without sex was preposterous and ludicrous. Why? Because we live in a culture that's placed such a premium on sex that we can't live without it. And anytime you look at something and say, I have to have that, I can't live without it, you are expecting it to fulfill you in ways that only God can. Now, why do we have these desires? Well, the text tells us it's because we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What's the lie? Well, notice the word lie is singular, not plural. It doesn't say many lies. It says a lie. What Paul wants to trigger in our brains here is the story at the beginning of our Bibles where the very first humans, Adam and Eve, believed a lie from Satan. And it's the same lie that you and I have been believing ever since. And the lie is simply this. I can define right and wrong on my own. I don't need God for that. I can define right and wrong on my own. I don't need God. And because we believe that lie, we end up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. We end up serving and worshiping creation rather than the creator. That's what the text says. That's the biblical definition of idolatry. So put this together. If we believe the lie that we can define right and wrong on our own and we don't need God for that, that will lead to searching for other things to fulfill us in ways that only God can. It will create in us desires that go chasing things that, that were never meant to fulfill us in ways that God can. And then because of that, we will serve and worship them. That's the natural progression of the flow. Let me give you an example of this. If I believe the lie that my career is what I need to give me contentment and true satisfaction in my life, it'll create in me a desire that is constantly chasing a promotion, believing that's what it will be to satisfy me. And because of that, I will bow down and worship the idol of my reputation among my coworkers or the financial success that I can get through my job. Now, most of us, we think we're not guilty of idolatry. We live in a modern Western world and you, know, you hear this thing of idolatry and you're like, I'm not guilty of that. I don't have a statue in my house that I'm bowing down to. That's not a thing in my world. But here's the thing, the, the, the process of idolatry is the same, whether you live in a pagan third world country or whether you live in the modern Western world. A person who bows down to an idol, expecting and praying to it, expecting it to deliver rain for their crops or health for their family or uh, security in their country is the same as a person who goes to their career looking for contentment. It's the same as a person who looks to their relationship with their kids and puts that on a pedestal as the number one thing in their life. It's the same as a person who looks to money for security and ultimate contentment. That person is making those things idols. They just go by a different name. And instead of bowing down to them with their bodies, they're bowing down to them in their hearts. See, at the end of the day, idolatry is just misordered worship. Instead of worshiping God, we worship creation. And make no mistake, you don't get a choice not to worship You are designed to worship. You are built to worship. And if you don't worship God, you will worship something else. 
You're designed to give your life over to something. You're designed to place your ultimate trust in something. You're designed to put something as supreme and first in your life to revolve your whole life around it. That's what worship is. You will do that either with God or with something else. And the answer to idolatry isn't to stop worshiping. It's to redirect our worship. See, you're designed to worship. You cannot not do it. So instead of worshiping creation, we should worship the creator. If we worshiped our way into sin, the way out of sin is to worship. The only solution to worshiping our way into sin is to worship our way out. When we worship God instead of creation, the reverse of this progression will happen. What will happen is instead of committing idolatry and worshiping and serving idols, we will now worship and serve God. And what that will do is create in us desires that will only be met by God. And because we're content and satisfied in God and we're not chasing other things in the world to fill that God-shaped hole, we will begin to see the truth that God knows what he's talking about. And we will reject the lie that we can define right and wrong on our own and we'll let God define right and wrong for us. This is the first progression of sin. Guys, all other sin is rooted in the sinful desires of our hearts. And if we give in to them, it will lead to all kinds of, of other sins. This is where Paul goes next. The second progression of sin. God gives us up to the sexual immorality of our relationships. God gives us up to the sexual immorality of our relationships. If we flip back over to Romans, see if I can find it. Romans comes after Acts, right? All right, there we go. Romans chapter one. I'm gonna read verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God gives us up to the sexual immorality of our Relationships. Notice in the text this word exchanged. It's the same word that's used in verse 25. What Paul's trying to say is if we exchange the truth about God for a lie, that won't be the only thing we'll exchange. We'll exchange all kinds of things. Guys, if we think we know better than God and we want to redefine what right and wrong is, we will do it in all kinds of places. Everything that is right will become wrong and everything that is wrong will become right and will tip the world upside down from the way that God created it. This is what sin does. It takes God's good order and makes it chaotic. It takes the way that God designed the world and turns it upside down. To make his point, Paul uses the topic of homosexuality. It's important to note that uh, Paul does not have an ax to grind here against homosexuality. In fact, I would argue this homosexuality is not the main point of this text. It's not the main point. What Paul is doing is he's using homosexuality as an example in the way in which we exchange God's truth for a lie. He's using it as an example. And the reason Paul brings it up is because he wants to show this progression of sin. I like the way one scholar puts it. He says, Paul brings up homosexuality here, not because it's a greater sin than any other, but because it is the clearest evidence of a rejection of God's order in creation. 
In fact, I'd argue your Bible uh, probably translates the words men and women, men and women in your text. Most translations will use those words, men and women. But in the literal translation, Paul is using the words male and female in verses 26 and 27. Why does he use male and female? Well, Paul wants, again, to trigger in our brains the beginning of our Bibles, where there's a story in which God creates the very first humans. And how does he create them? male and female. And they're meant to live in a relationship with each other through marriage, a lifelong committed relationship through marriage, one male, one female. But not only that, humans, male and female, are the prized creation of, or the prized part of creation because we are created in the image of God. Humans are the best part of creation. Male and female are the best part of creation. And so if our deepest issue, our deepest sin is that we worship the creation rather than the creator, then wouldn't it make sense that the very first thing we'd start to worship is ourselves, that we'd start to worship each other? Guys, homosexuality isn't the only way we do this. You can worship your husband or your wife in a heterosexual relationship just as much as you can worship your homosexual partner. Both of those are sin. It's just that homosexuality is a more obvious inversion of the way in which God designed our world. Now, I want to pause here because I I know the culture we live in, and I think it would be incredibly tone deaf uh, to not answer some questions and talk about this issue of homosexuality in some detail uh, because it is a heavy topic in our culture. So allow me to address some things regarding this issue. The first question that I just want to answer is the actual Bible part, and it's this. Is Paul talking about homosexuality the way that we think about it today? Is Paul talking about homosexuality the way that we think of it today? Because a lot of ink has been spilled trying to explain away what Paul says here. Trying to say, you can't just take what Paul wrote in the Bible in the ancient world culture and just drop it into our modern context. It doesn't work like that. And one of the main arguments that people will give is, to say that there's no way Paul would have known about homosexual relationships the way they are today because they didn't exist back then. So so Paul must be talking about uh, promiscuous homosexual relationships, whether it's a one-night stand or whether it's sleeping around or whether it's prostitution or whether it's homosexual acts without consent. That's what Paul is condemning. He's not condemning lifelong, loving, homosexual committed relationships. And the reason he's not condemning that is because it didn't exist back then. That's, That's the argument. Here's the thing, that's just not true. I don't know any other way to say that, it's just not true. Paul would have known about lifelong loving committed relationships back then because they existed. Plutarch, who wrote in the first century, makes a distinction between homosexual uh, relationships. Homosexual relationships that just done for pleasure, which he considers degrading, and loving, committed homosexual relationships, which he called beautiful. Pederasty was also a common practice in the ancient world. This was uh, between an older man and a young boy, and it was often for life. It was committed. And yet Paul doesn't use the word pederasty here. In fact, he calls out lesbian relationships as well. Because at the end of the day, if Paul wanted to make concessions for certain types of homosexual relationships, he would have said so. He had the language and he had the knowledge. They knew more in the ancient world about sexual relationships than we do. At this point, I think people will often want to say, okay, John, but I just don't know if that's fair. Is that really fair? Homosexuals don't have a choice. They're born that way. They don't have a choice. They're born that way. Here's the thing. I don't deny that. 
I don't deny that. I don't, I don't even dispute that. We're all born with innate and strong desires for all kinds of things that are sinful. I might be born with a disposition towards a, a grumpy and uh, te- hot temper, or I might be born with a disposition to be greedy and selfish with my money. It doesn't make those decisions right. If I walked into an AA meeting and I heard stories of alcoholics who say, I'm born with this strong desire towards drinking, it would not be helpful for me to convince them out of that. But likewise, it would not be loving to just say, you do you. Guys, we are all born with certain desires that are sinful. That doesn't mean it's right to act on them. The reality is, is the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. Full stop. I don't say that to be hateful. I say that to be kind. Because honestly, the worst thing I could do is come up here and be ambiguous about that. The worst thing I could do is come up here and not be clear. That leads me to my second question that I think it's asked, and it's this. Are homosexuals welcome in church? Are homosexuals welcome in church? Let me say this as loudly and as clearly as I possibly can. If you're a homosexual, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, if you're part of the LGBTQ community in any way, you are emphatically and 1,000% welcome here. We love you. We care about you. We genuinely want to know your story. And in the words of Ted Lasso, if you care about somebody and you have a little love in your heart, there ain't nothing you can't get through together. We are here for you. We love you. We care for you. We want to serve you. However, we are going to call you to the same gospel that we call everyone to. Everybody who walks through these doors is in need of the same gospel. We are all sinners in need of a savior, and that includes all sin. Guys, I think part of the reason the LGBT community does not feel welcome in a church is because we're so quick to call out that sin and not call out our own. Guys, the reality of the church is it doesn't look good when it comes to sexual sins. There is sexual abuse run rampant in churches. Guys, 40% of pastors, pastors, are addicted to pornography. Over half the evangelical world thinks there's nothing wrong with sex outside of marriage. And yet we're gonna call out homosexuality outside these walls and not look in the mirror and look at our own sin and call it out. Additionally, if you examine the scriptures, guys, Jesus has his harshest words for the religious hypocrites, not the sexually broken. Go to the Gospel of John. You'll see Jesus enter into the story of a woman caught in adultery and he's nothing but kind and gentle and caring towards her. And yet just a few chapters later when he encounters the religious Pharisees, he says, you brood of vipers. You're like a whitewashed tomb. You're full of dead man's bones. Guys, Jesus has his harshest words for the religious hypocrites because they are filled with self-righteousness. And oftentimes we are blind to that and we need to be woken up to that but he's often kind and gracious and gentle to the sexually broken because they know they're broken. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that sexual sins are any less wrong. They're just not the only ones. I'm not trying to lower homosexual to be somehow not as bad as the other sins. What I'm trying to do is show that all of our sin is worthy of the wrath of God, whether you're gay or straight. Church, what this means then is that the answer for homosexuals is not heterosexuality. 
Let me say that again. The answer for homosexuals is not heterosexuality. If being gay can send you to hell, being straight will not send you to heaven. The same hope for a homosexual is the same hope for any sinner. It's Jesus. Rosario Butterfield uh, was an English professor at Syracuse University. Uh, She was a practicing lesbian until she became a Christian in 1999. And she's really helpful on this. She says this, homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil, play judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than with pleasure for his glory. Homosexuality is just one example of these desires playing out. The last question that I want to answer, and maybe the most important, is why is homosexuality a sin? Why is homosexuality a sin? I'm indebted a lot to Sam Alberry on this question. Sam Alberry is a pastor in Nashville. Um, he is, uh, has struggled with same-sex attraction his whole life, uh, has chosen to live as a uh, celibate single man, and he's written extensively on this issue. And um, he notes that many Christians intellectually agree with what the Bible says on homosexuality, but they emotionally disagree with it. They intellectually agree with it, but they emotionally disagree with it. And so what they'll say is, well, yeah, the Bible does say that homosexuality is a sin, but I don't really like that. But we've got no choice. It's what the Bible says, so we have to obey it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying, I don't know if you can stay there. Because if you intellectually disagree with something, or I'm sorry, if you intellectually agree with something, but emotionally disagree with it, your emotions will eventually win out. Your I don't like it will turn into I don't agree with it. Guys, at the end of the day, we cannot hold to a biblical command if we're convinced that that biblical command doesn't lead to human flourishing and good. We can't just say that homosexuality is bad. We have to show why God's good design in creation is in fact good. Guys, God didn't design marriage and male and female to come together and reserve sex just for that to make us miserable. He did that because it's what's best for the human race. And the problem with homosexual sin or any other kind of sexual immorality isn't that it's a perversion of God's creation, although that's true. The problem is is that we end up placing our sexuality at the core of our identity rather than the fact that we are created in the image of God. And guys, our sexuality is fleeting all of the time. But the fact that we're created in the image of God is permanent. Or let me put it another way. If we place our whole meaning and significance on who we say we are, guys, that's unstable. Because who we think we are changes from week to week, from day to day, from hour to hour. But if we place our identity in who God says that we are in the way in which he's designed the world, that is stable. That brings true security. God doesn't have opinions about us that change. He has declarations over us that will always last. One thing, uh, before I move on, uh, I realize that this debate uh, brings up a lot of disagreements. It's just how it is. Um, and uh, there are some people in our culture, right? If, if we come up here and we say homosexuality is a sin, there are some people in our culture who will just label that as hate speech. Here's two things I want to say to that. Number one, may we as a church always be a church that backs up our words with our actions. Because the, the world may be able to disagree with what we say, may they never be able to deny how much we serve. 
They, they may be able to disagree and not like our message, but may they never be able to turn away and not say that church loves and cares and serves people in their city. Secondly, let's not retaliate against others who disagree with us. I know that there are people who are going to be harsh against us when we say these things about homosexuality. But can I tell you that most people that I know that are in the LGBTQ community that are harsh against Christians over this issue are harsh because the church was first harsh to them. Guys, our Savior told us to turn the other cheek. Let's follow that. Let's not escalate the situation and return harshness for harshness. Guys, the bar is so low in our culture. If, the, if they just saw Christians that were kind, we'd honestly decrease the intensity on this issue. The last category or progression of sin is this. God gives us up to whatever, our sin, to whatever sin our minds can think of. God gives us up to whatever sin our minds can think of. Flipping the text back open, we'll wrap this up. Romans chapter one. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. My last progression of sin for us to look at this morning is God gives us up to whatever, our sin, to whatever sin our minds can think of. Notice the word they and them in the text. It's used everywhere. Paul is trying to show how the world operates in sin. And sometimes I think it's easy for us in church to be like, oh yeah, they're talking about them. They, out, it's not us, it's them. It's the people out in this world. This certainly would have been the case for the original audience in Rome. Uh, in the Roman church, there would have been Jewish Christians who thought Paul was talking about Gentile Christians. And they would have been like, yeah, Paul, get them. Go after them, go after their sin. But this is a total setup by Paul because if you flip over to chapter two, Paul changes his word they and them to you, the singular word you. He says, you Christians, you may judge sin correctly, but you are guilty of the same things. Guys, see, Romans one is not glasses by which to see the world. It's a mirror by which to see ourselves. We're meant to see ourselves in Romans one. So after Paul uses the homosexuality, you might, the, the example of homosexuality, you might say, I'm not guilty of that. But guess what? You're probably more than likely guilty of something else in this text, which means all of us are under the wrath of God. Paul opens up the floodgates and he lists a bunch of sins that everybody can relate to. And if you don't think you've done anything on this list, go down to verse 30. It says disobedient parents. I want you to call your parents later and be like, have I ever been disobedient, mom and dad? They'll probably share some stories with you. The key thing Paul wants to show us here is that there's all kinds of things we do deserving of the wrath of God. These verses show us that sin does not have a stopping point. Because sin will always take you further than you want to go. It'll always keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll always cost you more than you want to pay. 
Sin infects us at every part of our lives. It corrupts the desires of our hearts. It corrupts our relationships. It corrupts our mind and reorients our brains until we are convinced that sin is okay. Theologians call this idea total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean that you do all of the sins in here 24-7 all of the time or that you're not capable of great good. You are capable of great good. The problem is total depravity teaches is that we can't do good enough to be right with God. That there's not a single part of us that is truly innocent. Our heart, our bodies, our minds have been corrupted. There's not a part of us that fully works the way God designed it. And so what do we do with this? Believe me, the discomfort you're feeling listening to this sermon this morning, I have felt all week as I've wrestled over this text, guys. I've been there with you. But here's the thing. One of the ways in which you know that you're dealing with the true God of the Bible, one of the ways in which you know that you're trusting in the true God of the Bible is if following him is uncomfortable. Many of us might call these things in this text sin, but how many of us are doing the uncomfortable work of confessing them? For many of us, there's no discomfort in following Jesus. And if that's true, if that's the case, then maybe we've made a God in our own image. If everything you already thought God agrees with, if the God that you're fashioning in your brain agrees with everything that you think, it's more than likely that you have made yourself God rather than the true God. So what do we do? What do we say to these verses? This is where I'm glad Romans 1 is not the end of the book. Paul has so much more to say. And in Romans 8, he's going to offer this hope that speaks directly to these verses. Check this out. Romans 8, 31, 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, listen to this, but gave him up for us all. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Guys, did you catch the language similarity? The same words that God gave up Jesus is the same language that's used in our verses three time that God gave us up. What that means is that God gives us up to our sins so that we see that they're deserving of wrath. But God gives up Jesus to the cross to see that God satisfied the wrath of God in Jesus. That God gives us up to our sins so that we see that they never satisfy, but God gave up Jesus so that we would see that he would never fail us. That he would always satisfy us. God gives you over to your sin so that you see the depths of your sin, but he doesn't leave you there. God gives over Jesus to the cross to see that his love goes deeper than any of your sin. God gives us up to our sin, but he gives up Jesus for our sin. God says to us in our sin, okay, kid, you want to do it your way? Go ahead. Let's see how this works out for you. But Jesus says to God in a garden right before he goes to the cross, okay, Father, I'll do it your way. Go ahead with your plan. This is the only way to save the human race. Salt Church, Romans 1 is not the end of your story. There's a God that's moved heaven and earth to save you from your sins, to give you a new heart, to restore your relationships, and to give you a new mind that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be changed from the inside out. The choice is ours. Will we run away from home and go down this progression of sin? Or will we acknowledge the goodness of God our Father and see how much he loves us at the cross? Let's pray. Father, 
I'm not naive to the fact that this is a loaded sermon. There's a lot of things to wrestle with. But God, I, know, I also know that when the word is declared and spoken, there is something about uh, that that the Holy Spirit loves to latch on and press it deep into our hearts. And so God, I pray like primer before paint, God, the text would stick in our minds, that it would shine in our hearts, and that the Holy Spirit would change us from the inside out. Father, this morning, I I don't know where people are coming from. I don't know the stories in this room. Some of us, God, we've been running from God for a very long time, giving in to our uh, sinful desires of our hearts. Many of us maybe have a past filled with sexual brokenness. Many of us have not cared about our sin and we've become callous and we just give in to whatever our mind can think of. Oh God, I pray that today would be a new normal for us, that you'd start a new work, that we would see that God, you gave us over to our sin, that we would see the error of our ways, but you gave Jesus over for our sin, that we could be saved. And we would turn and trust in you and see that you are the good father that has designed our world for our flourishing. May it be so. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.